At the beginning of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's clear that his goal was to reveal and to remind us of how unspeakably blessed we are to belong to God in Christ Jesus. And so he writes at the beginning of his letter, after the salutation, verse 3, chapter 1, you can all quote it, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are a blessed people. And then for three chapters, Paul expounds for us an incredible list of blessings that have been lavished upon us by the gracious hand of God. To Paul, this was the ground of all reality in the Christian life. The spiritual blessings that have been poured out upon us are not some pie-in-the-sky metaphysical imaginings of some ancient philosopher. They are God's revelation of the great rock that he has placed under our feet and under the feet of all who believe to enable us to stand in the evil day for the glory of God and for our own joy, no matter what the circumstance. And so I think if we were to ask Paul this morning, Paul, what does it look like for a person to pursue a life that really glorifies God and maximizes their own joy this side of heaven, what would that life look like? A life that glorifies God and maximizes its own joy. Paul, what does that look like? I think Paul would give us a two-part answer. First, he would say, Gain an increasing grasp, an increasingly greater grasp on the awesome realities that are yours in Christ. And second, he would say, reject the counterfeit pleasures of sin that promises life but lead to death. Two parts. Embrace and flee. Gain and let go. Or to use Paul's words that we looked at in chapter 4, put on and put off. Now, the reason I think Paul would give this kind of answer is because of the language he uses throughout this short letter. And some of it I just mentioned to you, but let me mention a couple of more. For example, in chapter 1, verse 17, Paul prays that God would, quote, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him and that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened to these realities, these blessings, as he called them in the beginning. And in chapter 3, verse 8, he prays again that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, why does he pray those kinds of prayers for us? You know why he prays those kinds of prayers for us? You know why you ought to be praying those kinds of prayers for your children? Because we are bent away from this. By nature, we move away from the eternal realities that are our heavenly blessings in Christ. We tend to ignore them. We tend to minimize them. We tend to downplay them and make them secondary. Oh, those are the things that we do during our quiet time. Those are the things that we do during church hour. But it isn't the sun of my life around which all the planets, everything, every other aspect, whether it be sports and education and job, all of that revolving around the sun, which is Christ. Paul says, I pray for you. Because if you don't work at this and God, by his grace, doesn't enlighten you, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation... Small r, revelation. If he doesn't do that for you, if he doesn't give you that understanding, and if you don't work toward gaining, grasping a greater measure of it, you won't get it. 
You'll never grow up. You will be a spiritual Peter Pan for the rest of your life. And that's not cute. You'll be tossed on the waves and driven by the wind of every doctrine that comes down the pike. Why? Because you'll be children who don't want to grow up. And so on the one hand, Paul shows that we need to gain a greater grasp of the awesome realities that are ours in Christ. That's what he would say. You want a life that glorifies God and maximizes your own joy? Then gain more of that. Gain a greater understanding, a greater embrace around the ultimate realities that are yours in Christ Jesus. But secondly, and on the contrary, on the other hand, Paul also writes, chapter 4, verse 17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance. You see, ignorance? We just saw him praying. I pray that you won't be ignorant. I pray that God would illuminate you, that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you would know the length and the breadth and the depth and the height. You've got to have help here so that you don't remain ignorant because ignorance is a mark of an unbeliever. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, it's an ignorance that comes from hardness. Don't walk like that. Don't live like that. Live like this. Don't live like that. Put this on. Take that off. In fact, that's what he says. We should not walk or live like unbelievers because when God saved us in Christ, chapter 4, verse 22, we laid aside the old self which was being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and we put on the new self which God created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Listen, folks. If you want a life that really glorifies God and maximizes your own joy, you have to do both. You've got to put on, yes. There are things that you need to do, yes. There are also things you need to stop doing. There are also things that you need to repent from. It's got to be both. Or you'll never get there. You'll never make any progress. You will be like a one-oared rowboat, right? On the one hand, you need to be putting on. On the other hand, you need to be putting off. It's like two oars in a boat. If you're only putting on, you're doing this, and, and, and you're just going around in circles. You ever done that? An awful lot of people, an awful lot of people who see no need for repentance, no need to submit to the commands of God, And they're just going around in circles, round in circles, round in circles, and they're never making any progress in their life. They never go to the mirror of God's word and they say, God, they never say this. God, show me me today. Show me how I need to change. And then work at it. If you're in the men's ministry, you have a prayer journal. And part of that prayer journal, men, I hope you're using it. There's a section in there where every month you get to identify one character issue that needs to change and you pray about that all month if you need to pray about it the next month you just copy it down you need to be praying about these things you need to be pursuing them not just what does god want me to do what does god want me to quit doing So in other words, as new creatures in Christ, God calls us to flee the counterfeit promises of sin, the counterfeit pleasures of sin. They're counterfeit. They didn't come from the blazing center where God is. Now, there are a few places in this letter where Paul actually addresses what these counterfeits are. And our passage this morning is one of them. We won't look at the others. We already have for the most part. Here, Paul reminds us of one of the great realities, namely that God in Christ loved us forgivingly, unconditionally, and sacrificially, verses 1 and 2. But beginning with verse 3 now, however, Paul turns his attention away from the self-sacrificial love 
to its counterfeit. He turns away from the thing that he wants you to put on, imitating God, therefore, love one another as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Put that on, but now we need to talk about what you need to put off. And it's interesting, just as an observation, that he almost always spends more time talking about what to put off because it's harder and everything in us fights it. And so he turns his attention from behavior that imitates God and walks in love to a manner of life that is diametrically opposed to Christianity at its very root. And so the first counterfeit, verse 3, is a counterfeit love. And we saw this last week. He writes, But immorality and impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now last week we looked at the obvious implication that the word immorality leads to. The Greek word here is porneia. And it brought us into a discussion of the insidious sin within the church, and it's obviously outside the church, of pornography. But the term immorality actually has a broader meaning. Certainly in Paul's day, there was no such thing as photography, and the PC didn't come around until the 80s. And so none of that was an issue. Pornography in that sense was not an issue. But sexual immorality was rampant. It was rampant. And especially in Ephesus, where you had the, the great um, temple to Diana, and the, which was nothing really but a giant sex cult. It was one of the, the uh, great wonders of the world in its day. But this was a severe issue. This was a major, major problem in society. And it was something that men were, especially men, were tempted to bring into the church. And so Paul deals with it. Paul's concern is that the believer distance himself from every kind of sexual immorality. Every kind. Whether it's on the TV or whether it's in some dark place with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whether it's in conversation over lunch at the job site, immorality of any kind is inappropriate for every believer. And there are no exceptions. And for that matter, so is any impurity. In other words, anything that is unclean, filthy, rotten, lustful. We are to flee from all these things. Anything that smacks of sexual immorality. Any words, any thoughts, any behavior, anything. The third term Paul uses here is greed. The word usually refers to a desire to acquire more and more material things than what other people have. It's kind of the ancient, he who has the most toys wins, right? But I don't think that's what he's talking about. Usually the word is used for grasping for what one wants but doesn't have. And that can, that can apply to a, a multitude of circumstances. I want a new car. I want another house. I want more money, I, whatever it is. It's greed. Personally, however, I think the word here has a more narrow focus. I think Paul is not just talking about greed in general ways, but greed in the realm of sexual immorality. Because that's the context. That's everything he's said so far. It's not that Paul lacks concern for the general sin of greed. In fact, I think he touches it in verse 5 when he uses the word covetous. And we'll look at that in a few minutes. Rather, I think he's simply being consistent with what he said back in chapter 4, verse 19, where he connects sensuality, this is interesting, sensuality with being greedy. He writes, And they, that is the Gentiles, having been calloused, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Impurity with greediness. It is a greedy impurity. It is a greedy immorality. It's a kind of immorality and greed that never gets full. It never has enough. The world may call such a thing a sexual addiction, a disease over which a victim has no control, but the Bible refers to it as a greed for all things sexual, sensual, impure, and immoral. It's like gold fever. Back during the gold rush days of California, somebody struck it rich, they hit gold, and the whole life gets thrown away in the pursuit of gold. Today it's the lottery. I mean, who do you see playing the lottery? 
people who can't afford to play the lottery. And who do you see with the people with the money? People who don't waste their money playing the lottery. But once you start playing it, the whole system is set up so that you can win a little bit, just enough to peak your fever, to keep you in it, to get more, to get more, to get more. If I just play a little longer, I'll get more. And that's the way it is when someone throws themselves into immorality. It's the same kind of thing. Once they've gotten a taste of this, they want more and more, and eventually they self-destruct. Well, that's the way it is with those who have given themselves over to counterfeit love. Once they have tasted it, they want more and more until it destroys their marriage and their family, their testimony, and everything in their lives that or of true value, ruins them. And I can tell you as a pastor who has talked with many men, many men and women, who have thrown themselves secretly into a life of immorality, it is destructive beyond anything I can describe. It is absolutely devastating. Paul says we're not to do that. We're not to think about it. We're not even allowed to talk about such impure things. Why? Because at the end of verse 3, it's not proper for saints to do so. They must not even be named among you as is proper for the saints. Now, I'm sure you realize that the word saints here is not a reference to a class of people who have been canonized by some authoritative branch of the church. No, the word for saint, hagias, means holy ones. Holy ones. In other words, it's appropriate for holy people to refuse to even speak about such things. You say, well, who are those holy people? Anyone who has the Holy Spirit is one of these holy ones. You are a hoggy oi, I think. A hagios in person. You are a holy one. You are holy in God's sight. It doesn't make sense for a holy person to... To be fooling around with things unholy. Would you expect the holy angel of God to be on the computer looking at impurity? I mean, that doesn't even make sense. It's foolishness to think so. Paul says that's the way it is with you. If you belong to God, if you have his Holy Spirit indwelling you, then you are a saint. You are a holy one, and you have no business messing around with things that are unholy. It's a reproach to Christ. It's a denial of the blazing holiness of God, who is the source and the center of all that is true and precious to us. And so, beloved, while you're gaining a greater grasp on the reality of God's love, you must also flee the counterfeit of sexual immorality in all of its forms. You say, well, that that movie that we're going to watch, it only only has one scene in it. Well, are you going to watch it? Flee. That's the first counterfeit. The second counterfeit we might call counterfeit humor, or you could say counterfeit conversation, but I think he's getting at something a little more narrow than conversation, though it would include it. Verse 4 says, There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, that's where the humor comes from, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Now, all three terms here, filthiness, foolish talk, coarse jesting, all refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversation, vulgar words that coming out of the mouth. Jesus said, it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. It's what comes out. It's not what goes in your mouth. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. What's coming out of your mouth? It's a kind of conversation that is utterly inappropriate among those whom God has set apart as holy. If you are holy, if you claim to be one of the children of God, a hagios, then you need to watch your tongue. It is inappropriate for you to say words 
that detract from the holiness that you are supposed to be shining forth to those around you for the glory of Christ. A person whose mind is full of immorality and impurity and greed from more of the same will betray his secret thoughts by the words that he speaks. With his mouth he will make light of such things in a joking way so as to make it acceptable by bringing you in on it, by getting you to laugh. Bringing you in on it. As if to say, these things really aren't that important. Isn't that silly that somebody would think that what I'm talking about is sinful? <laughs> it's not funny. It's not funny. The word filthiness means obscenity. It's speaking about things that are obscene, shameful, indecent. Or just using words that are totally inappropriate for a believer to use. The second term, silly talk, comes from a compound word. This is great. You ready? Children, you'll love this. Moralagia. It's two words put together to form a compound word. Um, by the way, it's the only time it's used. In fact, several of these words. The only, one, of my, one of my boys, I won't tell you which one, last night I was going over my message and he was reading this part of it. And, uh, and it said, uh, used only here in NT. And he said, Silly talk used only here in, in is that North Texas? <laughs> it's a New Testament. It's the only place it's used in the New Testament. Moralagia comes from two words. You know what they are? Moros, from which we get our word moron. And lagia, from lagos, which means what? Word, that's right. Moralagia. Moronic words, moronic speech, the speech of a moron, of a fool. The concern here is not with intelligence. It remains a concern about morality. It's the whole issue all the way through here, I think. It's not about intelligence. It's about morality. A person who speaks like this makes light of high standards of behavior, thinking that it's somehow funny or sophisticated to tear down anything that is high or praiseworthy or ennobling just for the laughter that comes from tearing it down, is a moron. They're speaking with moronic words. It's what much of television does. James Montgomery Boyce in Philadelphia one time wrote, This is what television does. It pretends to be funny, but it's destructive to those values that hold society together and suppress the worst, its worst elements. Be careful what you watch. If you watch television, be careful what you allow your kids to see, what you watch. The third term here is coarse jesting, which again involves vulgar expressions and indecent content. All of these terms come together to give us a picture of a person whose immoral mind gushes forth with immoral speech that is intended to make us laugh in agreement. But for the Christian, such humor is not funny. It's repulsive. It's offensive. It's counter to all that is true about God. It is counterfeit humor that does not come from the blazing center of reality where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We wouldn't ever find Jesus saying those things. You say, what do I do? What do I do if I'm in a situation and I got my friends, boys especially, girls too, you're standing around with Let's say a group of Boy Scouts, or you're standing around with a group of schoolmates, or you're standing around men with some guys from your cubicle, or whatever. And one of them, who knows you very well, says something that is totally inappropriate. What do you say? I was in seminary one time in the student center, and it's amazing the things that happen at seminary. If you have any uh, illusion that seminary is a holy place, uh, spending a little time there probably would cure you of that. Uh, there are unholy people there. Uh, in fact, there's unholy people everywhere there are people because we're all unholy. But we were sitting there one day, and, and one of the guys who was of uh, pursuing a, a ministry degree but as, was of some 
questionable conversation at least, said something that was inappropriate. And I had a friend who really was holy. I mean, it was almost uncomfortable to be around him. I mean, you just wanted to be around him because he kind of made you uncomfortable and you knew you were safe because he would never lead you into a place that was unholy or into conversation that was questionable. And it was just a delight. You just wanted to be with him. If you wanted to be holy, you'd hang out like people like, with people like that. And we're sitting around the table and this man says something that's inappropriate. And there's kind of some chuckles, nervous chuckles around the table, except for this one brother who looked across the table and he said, Tell me, what is there in my life that makes you think that I would enjoy listening to what you just said? I think we all got up and looked at our watches and said, "Mm, Time for class. (laughs) I've used that before. That's an appropriate thing when you're with a group of professing believers and one of them says something that is totally inappropriate. What is there about my life that you see that makes you think I would enjoy listening to that? You want to raise the bar? You want to set the standard? That'll do it. Counterfeit humor has no place in the believer's life. Now, don't misunderstand here. Paul's not saying that our conversation should be without humor. It's not what he's saying. To the contrary, Proverbs uh, 17.22 says, A joyful heart is like good medicine. And Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.4, There is a time to laugh. And those of you who know me well and my family well know that that's a lot of the time. We love to laugh. We loved, the boys just love to play tricks on each other, and we just have a great time as a family. We love to laugh, and that's a good thing. Nor do I believe Paul is speaking about a kind of childish silliness that is just as pure as it is fun. You know, somebody told me, oh, don't worry about having seven kids, man. They're, they're going to keep you young. And I thought, oh, they're killing me. I feel like I'm... I feel like I'm 70 already, and at the time I wasn't even 40. And, uh, and now I see how much time we spend just giggling and laughing and rolling around on the floor and playing and, and talking. And Paul's not talking about that. He's not talking about childishness. He's not talking about childish delight that's just as pure as it is fun. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's warning us to stay away from conversation, and especially humorous conversation that tends to draw us in, that is moronic, senseless, and often involves filthy sensuality. This kind of speech is not fitting, Paul says. That's his word here. It is not fitting. That is, it is not appropriate to the lifestyle of a Christian, because even what we laugh about should be consistent with the glory of God. I think there's a powerful application here to what we laugh about in work or with our friends about the kind of entertainment that we enjoy as well. We are an entertainment-driven society. And I would dare say it's reached every crevice of this community here. And there's an element of that 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 isn't unholy. It's few and far between that you can find. But I think we need to be careful because I think more and more, certainly today, much of entertainment being produced these days for teenagers, both in music and video and, and other ways, not only for the world but also for the church, is moronic by design. It's as if the purveyors of modern entertainment are trying to outdo one another in terms of how stupid and pointless they can become. Some of the stuff that I've seen snippets of, there is no point. You know, we teach our kids when we're teaching them to write or to speak, especially in writing. If you're going to write a story, you realize that there is a problem in every story. You understand that? If it doesn't have a problem to to resolve, it's not a story. It may be a documentary, but it's not a story. Stories always involve problems. You always have someone who gets involved in a situation that needs to be resolved. Some fix it at the end. And so we're, we're watching this one day, and I'm thinking, okay, 
What's the theme here? What's the plot? What's the problem? And I finally realized there wasn't any theme. There wasn't any plot. There wasn't any problem. It was just a series of random acts of moronic stupidity designed to make people laugh. Stay away from that garbage. It's not fitting. Do you realize that you're a child of the king? You're a child of God? Stay away from that stuff. It's counterfeit. It's not the real thing. It's not offered you by the gracious hand of a holy God. It's moronic, coarse. It's often just plain filthy. It doesn't have any place in a believer's life. These are not the kind of things that should spring forth from our mouths or something that we enjoy with our eyes or be enjoyed by any of the children of God. In fact, they are the exact opposite. So what should our conversation be saturated with as people who know and love the God of all grace, the God of all glory, the God whose name is love? What should our, con- our conversation be saturated with? Well, he tells us. He says, verse 4, And there must be no, uh, there must not be, there must be no, fili- <laughs> can I read? There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather what? Giving of thanks, thanksgiving. Over here, the things that we're putting off are these immorality, impurity, coarse jesting, silly talk, which is foolish talk or moronic talk. Put all that stuff on. Well, what should, off. What should I work on putting on? Thanksgiving. You want to talk about something? You want something to guide your conversation? Make everything you say a word of thanksgiving. Praise, excellence, glory. Our mouths should be organs of joyful thanksgiving. The more we gain a grasp on how unspeakably blessed we are with the infinite realities of God in Christ, which he lavished upon us because of his great love with which he loved us, the more we will gush forth grateful, thankful praise. And perhaps the reason that we are not characterized by a conversation that is full of grace and thanksgiving and praise is because we are not even attempting to gain a greater grasp on the eternal realities, which are the blessings that we have in Christ. That's what we should be like. Paul says if we press forward in this, we will not be wrapped up in some kind of greedy ingratitude that always wants more and is never satisfied. We will be satisfied in Christ. We will be satisfied. We won't find ourselves laughing at Filthy, moronic humor, but joyfully singing, even laughing at how upside down it is that we who are so unworthy should be so loved and cherished and provided for by almighty, holy God. That'll fill your heart with joy. I love that song we just sang a little while ago, Wonderful Grace of Jesus. Many of you were singing it like... Your whole life is grounded on, on that truth, like that's the very ballast in your ship. I wonder how many, I was going to ask for a raise of hands, and I won't, but I wonder how many of you who were under 40 grew up singing that song. I almost asked after we sang that song, how many of you uh, never heard that song before you came here? I'm stunned at how many young people, college-age kids, grew up in churches who never sang songs like that. It's truth here. Wonderful grace of Jesus, reaching the most defiled by his transforming power, making me God's dear child, purchasing peace in heaven for all eternity. Oh, the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me, me. That'll make your heart sing if you understand what you're singing. It'll make you joyful. 
It'll help you be thankful. But we spend our time giving our hearts to other things. We spend our time letting our hearts out to that which is questionable, borderline, and certainly not truly holy. And we wonder why in our conversation we tend to not be as spiritually minded as we wish we were. And perhaps we don't even wish we were. This is what it means to embrace the realities of Christ and reject the counterfeits of the world. It's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. But the sad reality is that millions, even billions of people live every day of their lives for the pleasure of the counterfeits rather than the pleasures of God. And that's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous way to live. The author of Hebrews says that believers, Hebrews 13, 15, should continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. How do you offer up praise to God? You thank him over and over and over again. My grandfather was like this. He would drive us nuts. Lord, thank you for that parking place. Lord, thank you for letting me get in this lane. Lord, thank you for this meal. Lord, thank you for the the wreck we just had, you know, and then we're still safe. Thank you for that. Lord, thank you for the beautiful sun. I was coming in this morning, uh, 6.30. The sun was coming up, one of the most beautiful sunrises I've seen since probably, I don't know how long, months and months and months. I looked at that, and I had had to discipline myself to say, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for that. It shouldn't take much work. That should be springing forth from us because we know how truly blessed we are. It's the way Paul would have us talk. On the other hand, Paul says in Romans 1.21, now this is instructive. Romans 1.21, somebody said, mm-hmm, you know where Romans 1 is going, right? Unbelievers are those who, even though they know God, they do not honor him as God or do what? Give thanks. One of the marks of an unbeliever is that they don't give thanks. They don't give thanks spontaneously, and they don't give thanks when pressed. Why? Why should this be important to us? Well, because people who embrace a counterfeit love and enjoy counterfeit humor also engage in counterfeit worship. These kinds of people are in serious, serious danger because embracing a counterfeit love, expressing it in counterfeit conversation, counterfeit humor, is indicative of a person who is also embracing counterfeit worship. Counterfeit worship. Read verse 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. That's serious. For this you know with certainty. In the Greek it says, for this you know knowing. In other words, what I'm about to say, you already know with an absolute certainty, but it bears repeating. And what is it that they know absolutely? Simply this, that no immoral or impure, and by the way, he's taking immorality and impurity and personifying it. No immoral or impure person, guilty of, uh, 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 or, uh, or covetous man, is, who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's why it's serious. If you're the kind of person who has embraced a life of immorality and impurity and guilty of greedy covetousness, then as far as God concerned, you're worshiping at the feet of a rival God. You might as well be bowing to Molech. You're praising a false deity. You're giving sacrifices to Buddha. You're giving what you owe, the one true God, to a so-called God of your own making. And that, my friends, in the mind of God, is intolerable. The Lord is one, and he will have no rivals. I will not give my glory to another, God says. 
In the world of psychology, these things are usually referred to in terms of diseases, these counterfeit sins, this immorality, impurity, greediness, sensual greediness. People will say, oh, this person has a sexual addiction, or this person is an alcoholic, or that person is a drug addict, or they have this ism, or that itis, or whatever it is. They're all victims of behavioral diseases given to them by their parents or by society in general. It's not their fault. But that's never how the Bible refers to these things. To God, these are all different forms of worship. They are all different forms of idolatry. They are all different forms of counterfeit worship. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, It does not matter what it is. Anything that you and I tend to set up is the big thing, the central thing in our lives, the thing about which we think and dream, the thing that engages our imagination, the thing that we live for, the thing that gives us the biggest thrill. If it is anything other than God, it is idolatry. And it is for every one of us to examine ourselves. Some people worship money, he says, what it can do and what it can bring and what it can get. Some people worship status and position. Others, their own brains and ability. Still others worship their own good looks. It is all idolatry. And it is the ultimate sin. We are meant to worship God and to worship Him alone. There is but one God and He recognizes no other. That's why this is serious. You see a person who is embracing all the, all the counterfeits then know for certain, know for certain, know with knowing that that person is worshiping a God of his own making. If you are living this kind of lifestyle the Apostle warns against in this text, Paul says you need to know for certain that you have absolutely no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Know for certain If you are living this kind of lifestyle, if you are flirting with these kinds of things, be warned. People who practice such things certainly will not inherit the kingdom of God and Christ. Now, just an aside here. Why do you suppose he says kingdom of God and Christ? Isn't that an unusual term? Kingdom of God, sometimes, a lot of times in the Bible we see that. Kingdom of Christ, once in a while that phrase is used. Why kingdom of God in Christ? I think there's a reason. I think for the most part, especially in the Old Testament, when Scripture speaks of the kingdom of God as referring to some future reality, the millennial kingdom, the time when we will all stand before God as holy people in our resurrected bodies, it will be finished, the old will be passed away completely, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. It's the kingdom of God. Future. Usually, on the other hand, when the scriptures speak of the kingdom of Christ, it represents the, f- the phase of God's present rule in Christ. Christ's rule and reign. It's the kingdom of Christ. We are now living in the kingdom of Christ. We are headed toward the kingdom of God. And so Paul is saying, don't be deceived. If you're flirting around with this lifestyle, be warned. If you are deeply into this lifestyle, be warned. You need to understand that whether it's the kingdom of now or the kingdom of the future, you don't get any of it. You are not a part of any of it. It is not for you. The inheritance, the blessing, all the spiritual blessings that come to us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus are not yours. Know that with knowing. Know it for certain. Do not mess around with some flaky doctrine that says you can live like that and still belong to God. Know it with certainty. You've embraced a counterfeit worship. And you know what? That leads to a fourth thing. Counterfeit love leads to counterfeit conversation or counterfeit humor, which reveals counterfeit worship that leads you into a counterfeit hope. Number four. Look at verse six. Paul carries on his warning. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Do not be partakers with them. 
This verse spells out the dire consequences of the immoral, God-belittling people. Such people have been deceived into embracing counterfeit pleasures and rejecting the blessed realities that God graciously gives to all people who will receive them. In fact, from time to time, you as a Christian may even be tempted to give in to the temptation of embracing one of these counterfeit pleasures. Paul warns us to stay as far away from these things as possible because the wrath of God is coming upon men. And it's coming upon men is owing to such things. This kind of behavior, which reveals that kind of heart. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Don't you understand that you are going to be partakers with the wrath that comes with partaking in the pleasure? I would dare say that there are many people in good churches like this one all across the country who have plunged themselves headlong into the very thing that Paul is warning about here. They have bought into the counterfeit doctrine that I'm going to tell you something about. It's a big word, and I want you to repeat it with me. It is called antinomianism. Now say that. Antinomianism. That's great. Some of you just woke up. Good morning. (laughs) Antinomianism. I know it's a big theological word. You need to learn big theological words. It helps you worship. Antinomianism. You know what antinomianism is? Again, it's a compound word. It's made up of two parts, Latin and Greek. Anti, meaning against or opposed to. It's sometimes just translated no. No. And the other word is namas, which means law. So an antinomian is one who rejects the law. No law. No law. In their minds, all of this talk about not being immoral or telling dirty jokes or using vulgar language or watching moronic entertainment, all of that is just a form of legalism. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, Oh, good night. Are there still people who preach this stuff? I thought that went out with the dodo. As long as the word of God is here, it will be preached here. An antinomian is one who rejects law. And they see every call to obedience to the word of God as legalism. Which is the opposite of antinomianism. The antinomian says, no law. The legalist says, everything is about law. Where does grace fit into the picture? There are people who say that grace covers all that they do. It doesn't matter how one behaves just so long as they've walked an aisle and prayed a prayer or maybe been baptized. And for some people, they would even say that the command to be baptized is even legalistic, so we're not going to do that either. It's good enough that we prayed a prayer and we walked an aisle and we told everybody we're born again and we signed a little ditty card in the back here that says, if I ever doubt my salvation, I'll come back here and I'll look and I'll remind myself, I drove in the stake. Thank you, Charles Finney. And my assurance is now built on nothing less than the sticky note that's in the back, tightly pressed in the back of my Bible. Is that where your assurance comes from? And you're living an immoral lifestyle and you're saying that you're born again and that living like this and enjoying that kind of entertainment and doing those kinds of things and speaking like that, that's legalism to say I shouldn't do that? Paul says, know with knowing that that kind of thinking leads to no inheritance in the kingdom. Do not be deceived. Let no one deceive you with those kinds of empty words. And here's a big one, folks. You want a category for this? Here's a big category that fits under this. And that's anyone who teaches that you can accept or receive Jesus as Savior and not receive him as Lord. You can kind of split Jesus in half and say, can I take half of you now? I'll think about the other half later. I want the grace. We'll talk about the holiness. This is the worst form of antinomianism because it gives people a counterfeit hope. The inspired authors 
believe that external behavior is simply an expression of the inward realities of the heart. People who freely disregard the commands of God are living in unbelief. They are, therefore, unbelievers. Know that with knowing. That's why Paul says here, do not become partakers with them, because if you partake of their behavior, you will also partake, and if you partake of their values, and you partake of the pleasures that they enjoy, you will also partake in their judgment. For this you know with certainty that no immoral and impure person has an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. But the true Christian says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is, you hear thanksgiving here, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And I know what they are. And they are precious to me. And they are becoming more precious to me by the day. And such believers do battle every day in their own hearts to gain a greater grasp of those eternal realities while fleeing the counterfeit pleasures of the world. David knew about this, did he not? Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. They don't do those things. But their delight, what they put on, they delight, their delight is in the law of the Lord and in His law, antinomian, in His law they meditate day and night and they will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water and they will bear fruit in every season. Their leaf will not wither, and whatever they do will prosper. Not so the wicked. Not so the wicked. They will be like the chaff which the wind drives away. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? You will not have any inheritance in the kingdom of God or Christ. Beware. 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 We choose not to embrace counterfeit love and counterfeit humor, knowing that they will lead to a counterfeit worship, which produces a counterfeit hope. Beloved, don't let yourself be deceived by a way of life that promises promises pleasure, but leads to death. You can have the best of both worlds, You can have a life that glorifies God and maximizes your own joy. But it all is about pursuing Christ. Christ. Let's pray.